Welcome to the Scandinavian Mind podcast. I'm Conrad Olson, founder and editor-in-chief of Scandinavian Mind. Our guest today is Taras Kravchuk, the Swedish founder and designer at Tarform, an electric mobility company that makes the most awesome motorcycles out of Brooklyn, New York. Taras is featured in our latest print magazine in a story written and photographed by our US contributor Agaton Ström. In this podcast, we revisit the audio interview done by Agaton at the Tarform studio. Taras talks about bridging old custom motorcycles with new technology, how his Swedish upbringing made him respect the environment, and how mobility will see a massive change in the next 10 years, much thanks to urbanization and electrification. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to stay updated on the latest news and learn about upcoming talks and events. Visit scandinavianmind.com newsletter. Here now, Agaton Ström in conversation with Taras Kravchuk. Enjoy. So, um, thank you for, for having me. Um, I'm sitting here with, uh, with, with Taras. Um, he's an entrepreneur, designer, and founder and CEO of Tarform. Did I, uh, did I miss anything? No, that's it. Thank you. Great, great. Um, so could you quickly explain what a Tarform is? Um, we build electric motorbikes here in Brooklyn, but the idea is to not just focus on one specific product, but look at mobility as an ecosystem of various vehicles. And uh, I think looking at how our cities are being developed today, uh, people tend not to buy large vehicles anymore, such as petroleum-based cars. And uh, there's a whole generation of people growing up on electric mobility. Everything from one-wheelers, scooters, motorbikes. So the way we're moving around cities is rapidly changing. And for us, it's um, interesting to look at what other vehicles are people going to be using in the space of lightweight mobility. Um, but we're beginning with premium electric motorbikes. Very cool, very cool. So how did the, uh, the idea come about? Mm, I don't think it was just an idea that I woke up one day and was like, oh, I'm going to build an electric motorbike. But it was probably forming over many years and uh, um, I grew up in Sweden and Stockholm so heavily influenced by um, environment and ecology and obviously Scandinavian design um, began my career in uh, software um, primarily digital design branding and uh, uh, for, uh, did some furniture design uh, product development um, and uh, I got into the world of motorcycles when I think it was fairly late, about 23, 24 years. I bought an old Yamaha XS400 from 1982. And initially, this thing was so intimidating. It was just loud and just sitting on it. I'm like, oh, what the hell is this? You know, But that feeling of just riding in Valentina, which is where I, uh, where I had my home, uh, just fell in love with this 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 thing of being on two wheels, you know, and uh, fully, fully kind of exposed. You know, you're not in a roll cage like you're in a, in a car. And then the day after, I started taking the bike apart. Um, 
I had no idea what the hell this was, but you know, in a few days it was scattered in hundreds of pieces across my shop. I'm like, what, what is this? A carburetor? How does this work? And um, just fall out with the process of building this thing, you know, and putting sort of your own kind of taste and uh, personality into it. Very cool. Very cool. So how did, once you decided that you were interested in motorcycle, how did it translate to actually start a company here in Brooklyn? Mm. Um, so I had my design studio here in New York and uh, did everything from uh, mobile, um, mobile development, software development, um, smaller hardware projects. And this weekends I uh, spend most of my time in um, this garage in Brooklyn just uh, uh, building vintage bikes. And that was for me to kind of get away from, you know, the traditional staring at a screen for eight, ten hours a day. Um, and uh, got more and more sort of, you know, attracted to the world of making stuff with your hands. And uh, I opened up a makerspace called Craftsman Avenue about five, six years ago. And the idea was to get creatives from the digital world into a shop environment and let them basically explore what does it take to build things with your hands. So we started teaching classes like um, welding, uh, woodworking, jewelry design, uh, motorcycle building. And I started teaching a class basically um, how to do minor customization on your bike. So if you have a motorbike, a vintage bike, bring it in and we'll show you how to um, uh, paint a tank, how to do a new seat upholstery, you know, very basic sort of things. Um, and then I, uh, by accident, um, got a request to build a custom bike for a British uh, motorcycle fashion company called Bellstaff. So I found this uh, Triumph um, from 1973, upstate New York, and this thing was just rusted. And um, I took it apart, started sourcing uh, new, uh, new parts from eBay, uh, a new tank, uh, custom fabricated seat. And I had 30 days to basically convert this old rusty barn find into a, a showpiece that they would have in one of their stores. Um, so I did that and uh, that kind of drew me even further into the world of sort of custom motorbikes and just building, you know, this, this machine and kind of putting, redesigning it. Um, I did that for a couple of years, but never really entertain the idea to be a custom bike builder because I still loved the world of technology and everything that was happening in uh, uh, advanced manufacturing and uh, 3D printing. Um, and it was somewhere there, the idea was basically like, well, why hasn't anyone done uh, an electric motorbike that sort of bridges the world of old school custom, you know, timeless craftsmanship uh, with all the new technology that we have available? And the, Obviously, Tesla came in and completely changed the landscape of in the automotive industry. What is a car for the 21st century um, and how they use technology? So I felt, oh, well, here's a big challenge. Why not do a, a motorbike that is not just zero emissions, uh, but also rethink um, how do we make them? What kind of materials go into this? Can we move away from toxic materials can we move away from petroleum-based plastics and look basically at the entire life cycle of the way we're building products today? And that was the inception of uh, Tarform. Wow. So 
I've seen throughout the years, there have been not several, but a few motorcycle companies, electric, um, sort of come and go. Um, what, what makes you guys different? It remains to be seen, you know, what makes us different. But uh, looking at the trends, um, I think timing has a lot to do with it. Um, many companies that started too early, the technology didn't reach a certain state of maturity where you had enough uh, battery range uh, or cost. So now we're kind of at this pivotal moment where uh, batteries are affordable and they have enough energy density that you can actually build a product that is not yet competing with internal combustion engines, but it's enough for sort of the new consumer to say, well, this is great. It's, it's enough for me to start transitioning towards electrical vehicles. Um, uh, but again, for, for us, it's not just putting batteries into, into motorbikes, but rethinking um, how do we build these things? And um, automotive industry is very uh, toxic in terms of um, production. So most of carbon emissions happens actually during the production of a vehicle, not during its use. It's about 80-20. So typically we tend to focus on, you know, electrical vehicles are not uh, uh, polluting. And sure, they're not. But there's a lot of uh, um, a lot of carbon emissions that happens during the construction. So we started basically looking at what is really happening during the manufacturing phase and uh, how can we embrace uh, local supply chains? How do we avoid shipping things from all over the world? Um, how do we use materials that are uh, sustainable? And uh, it's, it's a big challenge. I bet, I bet. So you're, you guys are here in Brooklyn. Um, it's not a place you would think of as terms of manufacturing or, or motorcycle factories. Um, what is it about Brooklyn and the startup that made you sort of mm. choose to be here? Um, that's a good question. And so we're in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Uh, for two, three hundred years, they used to build uh, ships here. Um, and thousands of people were employed here. I think at, uh, at its max capacity, it was about 60,000 people worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So this, this region is filled with, you know, centuries of heritage of craftsmanship and just making things. And then after World War II, uh, Navy Yard got decommissioned and tons of old warehouses were basically empty. And the last 20, 30 years, New York City made an initiative to sort of bring back manufacturing to uh, New York, specifically Brooklyn Navy Yard. And, uh, uh, they started taking a lot of initiatives to attract tech companies, um, manufacturing companies, sustainability, and basically create this into a sort of an ecosystem. So when we joined a hardware accelerator called New Lab, it was uh, just a great community. We said, well, would it be possible to build a manufacturing company in Brooklyn? And yes, the rents are still, of course, much higher than uh, somewhere in Minnesota or in the South. But building a motorcycle does not require a gigafactory. The footprint uh, can be kept fairly, fairly small. So for now, we decided, you know, why not build these things in Brooklyn? And uh, what we do is parts are fabricated all over the world, but uh, they're being shipped here and we basically put them together. So it's called final assembly. Um, can we do it at larger volume? I hope, but um, we're starting as, as, as smaller. 
You mentioned earlier that you grew up in Sweden and you have a background in design and, and, and your sort of Scandinavian perspective influenced the uh, look of the bikes, look and feel of the bikes. Mm. I think a lot. Uh, I wonder uh, how much of that is influenced by just the Scandinavian approach to minimalism, you know, which is obviously Scandinavia is known for sort of its sober aesthetic. Everything is very clean. There's a lot of uh, use of white space and essentially decluttering. Um, so when I, when I, uh, when I spent a lot of time in various design fields, obviously I, I was striving to create something that is as minimal as possible. Now, um, then the question is, wh what is minimal and uh, where are you striving? You know, so, uh, I grew up also doing a lot of martial arts. So I was very influenced by the Zen side of aesthetics as well, which is actually very similar to Scandinavian. Yeah, same minimalism. Same minimalism. It's about removing everything that's non essential. And in a way, that's how nature operates. You know, there's no sort of abundance that is not needed in nature. Uh, so I felt that it's an interesting exploration to, um, if you're to create something that is as complex as a motorcycle, could you distill it to just a few simple lines? And then, obviously, everything that goes into the bike does not have to be evident. You don't have to see the battery pack and all that stuff. So, sort of the, the design inspiration came from uh, vehicles in mid-century that seemed to preserve some sort of timelessness to them. So, if we look at Porsches in the 50s, you know, Jaguars, um, we look back and there's something about the shape that doesn't seem to be outdated. Um, I, I keep thinking of like the cars still running in Cuba. You know? Yeah, exactly. And I think it just people spend a little bit more dedication and time to to refining a shape, a form. Um, and uh, I felt okay. Can, could we bring uh, some of those elements that seem to be timeless? And I think the cleaner alignments, the cleaner the silhouette of something is. The, the more it will sort of endure the test of time. And, um, so that became one of the foundational thing is basically removing all the non-essential and, uh, how do you capture the shape of a motorcycle, the shape of movement in, uh, as few lines as possible. So as, in your background as designer, could you t talk about the, um, sort of UX, um, and the UI research that has gone into the bikes? Yeah, so because I spent so many years in um, uh, the world of uh, digital visual communication, this felt also like an amazing opportunity to kind of tie in the digital uh, sphere into something that is as intimidating as a motorcycle. Um, if you look at traditional motorcycle uh, instrument panels and gadgets, uh, it, it's not it's not an object of desire. It's not a beautiful thing, right? Rarely do they pay attention to the typography or color scheme. It's usually sort of here's numbers and here's a gauge. Just indicate something. Um, so we spent quite a lot of time finding a round display, which was three, four years ago, quite a challenge. A round LCD display basically didn't exist. So I found one company and uh, uh, it was a, uh, it was a high resolution display. So suddenly this became sort of a round canvas for us to do anything we want there. Um, and it was just an interesting thing to kind of bridge 
you know, graphic design and really look at what typography do we want to have on this and uh, um, the color scheme. And so the, the digital visual identity uh, became as important as the, uh, the industrial design of the bike. Um, and so it is throughout the entire brand from, from the logo type, the way we manufacture to the small sort of nuances that, uh, or the imperfections you see during making something with your hands. So I think it, it's, um, it's a, whenever you find something that's handmade, you know, a handmade, uh, chair or table, there's something subtle about it, uh, that maybe you don't really can pinpoint in words, but you feel yeah. it. I feel like something that's handmade with its <clears throat> slight imperfections makes it more organic. Yeah, um, exactly. And in uh, Japan, they have this thing called wabi-sabi, which is uh, you intentionally leave imperfections as they are because they see, let's, uh, let's address the beauty in the imperfections. And in our sort of modern world, we're always looking at objects that are mass manufactured and mass produced. And we try to get rid of these imperfections. And I think you lose a little bit of character of it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. So we all know what a motorcycle sounds like. They wake us up in the middle of the night if you live in New York and you hear them when you're driving a car, especially when they backfire, this sounds like a gun going off. Yeah. Now, what does an electric bike sound like? Talk mm. about the sound of your bikes. Electric vehicles in general are silent. You barely hear them coming. And uh, being on a bike, the sound is, uh, is, a, is a big part of the experience. It's, uh, it's an indication of uh, how quick you're going. You know, if you go five, 6,000 RPM, you know you got so much horsepower. So we're, we've been trained to sort of associate sound to speed. Uh, on electrical vehicles, that sort of connection gets you know, it's like you're cutting it and you just step on the pedal uh, or on the throttle and suddenly you're doing 60, 70 miles an hour without even realizing it. So it takes a little bit of time to kind of re retrain your senses to it. Um, so we're thinking, could we somehow make the sound of electric motorbike um, enhance it and make it louder than uh, what it is? But we didn't want to add a digital projection to it. So you see in some car brands, they... Uh, uh, the sound is coming out of the speakers and mm -hmm. it's a digitally synthesized sound, mm -hmm. which is kind of like, ah, it's, you're playing a song. Right. You know, I want to hear the authentic notes. It's like when you're taking a photo engine. with your phone, it has that fake click exactly. sound. Yeah. 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 So, um, I was talking to one of, uh, uh, one of our engineers and he's a, um, uh, he's a composer and an electric sound engineer. And we're basically looking at our first prototype and thinking how, what can we do to add uh, an element of authenticity to the sound? And uh, then two weeks later, he comes out and says, I think I have it. Why don't we turn the bike into an instrument? And uh, I said, well, what does that mean, an instrument? He's like, well, how does an electric guitar work? Uh, you play the guitar, right? And you have a pickup microphone that picks up the frequencies from, uh, from the strings. And then you have an amplifier. So... You're playing the guitar. The sound is coming from the guitar, but you're just making it louder. So why don't we use the same concept into electric bike where we pick up the sound and the frequencies from the motor that's already there and simply amplify it. 
So we have an acoustic resonator built into the bike that is basically uh, designing and extracting the sound from the motor and just making it louder. So what you hear is, is the sound of the bike, but uh, turned up essentially. Um, and in the future, you, each rider can sort of add their own uh, sound design to it. Um, and it serves two things. One is safety. So as, uh, as you walk around the city, you know, you hear that something coming, but it's clearly not an internal combustion thing. And it's also for your own experience. It's, uh, you kind of reestablish that connection between sound and uh, speed. Speaking of safety, are there any other, um, I know a lot of cars these days, they have the, um, the backup cameras and the, uh, the peripheral detection systems, mm -hmm. and none of that really exists with motorcycles. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite interesting why, because blind spot detection has been in cars for a number of years. Um, one of the reasons is the size of it. So now a sensor technology has reached a point where they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So now we can actually integrate something like an ultrasonic radar into a small vehicle like a motorcycle. Um, so we looked at safety from a couple of different perspectives. One is how do we enhance um, the rider's senses that are already there? Um, so, you know, if you're traveling 50, 60 miles on the highway, uh, you don't want to be looking over your shoulder to see if there's a car in your blind spot. Because that, in that moment, you've already traveled, you know, so you want to be fully focused and immersed. On what's in front of you. On what's in front of you. Um, so we developed a, a blind spot detection uh, uh, a system, basically, that you add at the uh, tail of the bike. And through haptic feedback, which means your seat vibrates uh, whenever there's something in your blind spot. <laughs> and you see a little uh, light on the dashboard. So the idea is that you're riding and you're not distracted, but you kind of feel that there's something behind you. Um, another point is um, we're working on a front-facing camera and uh, use computer vision. So basically the bike scans the road in front of you, and let's say you're a little bit too close to the car in front of you. And if the car suddenly breaks, you're not gonna have enough uh, time to brake. So the bike would tell you, if you increase your distance to 50 feet, then you'll have a chance to brake. So the idea is, how do, we, how do we build a dialogue between the bike and the rider so that you become more confident and essentially uh, teach you the things that they usually teach at motorcycle school uh, that is easy to forget, you know. And using all the sensors, using all the data that you can get from, from a bike, then the question is, how do you extract what's relevant and then present it through the dashboard, through haptic, that doesn't get too overwhelming? Because um, at the end of the day, you know, riding a motorbike, you're owning the experience, and we don't want to, we don't want the bike to ride for you, but simply to just enhance um, what's already there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so much of riding a motorcycle is really engaging all your senses in a almost primal level to the point where you're acting on muscle memory. Yes. And so you see the car in front of you, you know, without actively thinking about it, you know that you need to slow down, leave more space. Yeah. So using a technology to help you do that would be, um, would, I think it would quickly increase the learning curve in the beginning. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, uh, you know, we can build that relationship. Uh, in my opinion, that's what technology is for. Uh, technology should be there as an aid 
to enhance what's already there, uh, not remove it. You know, so a lot of times in in cars, for example, you get into the car and you're just overwhelmed by all the information. You know, you got dashboards the size of uh, uh, TVs and numbers flashing everywhere, and it's just so it's distracting. Uh, is there a way to use all the complexity that you know th this data and all the sensors can provide, but only show you what's uh, what's relevant? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very cool. So you've been you've been working on these bikes for what four years, five years? Um, uh, four and a half years, yeah. Okay. Um, and you mentioned to me earlier when you spoke on the phone that it's been one heck of a journey. Uh, and you said something that I thought was pretty inspiring. It was a good quote. Um, you said something to the fact that like that it was your naivete that was driving you. Mm to go through with this entire project. Like if you had known starting out how difficult it would have been, yeah. maybe you would have rethought ever starting this crazy stuff. Yeah, you know, it's easy to connect the dots when you look back. And it's like, oh, that's uh, <laughs> that's how it's done. Um, but for sure, it, it, when when I when the idea was like, oh, what would it take to build an electric motorbike? And not just that, to build a manufacturable bike, you know. So building something once as a custom bike it's it's achievable because you can spend so many hours on hand labor you know if something's not perfect we'll just go go back trim it you know and modify it but building something that can be replicated at scale is a completely different endeavor which means that every part you design you have to think how does that part fit with another part how long does it take for these two parts to get assembled together and uh that is, uh, it's it's a very different philosophy and just approach to sort of developing a product. Um, and I had no idea about this when I started. So I I came from the world of building one-off bikes. You know, I'm like, well, how difficult can it be? Um, but then you know, endless hours of research and understanding the field of electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, and uh, kind of like looking at a completely blank map and then sort of an exploring the terrain as you go, you know, and uh, now as I see the map and explore the terrain, <laughs> then I can ask my question, would I do that again knowing that? Possibly. But what it, what is know. it that you would have done differently, do you think? Um, I, I don't know if there is anything. I think, it, like, you just have to trust the process. And, you know, we're here for that reason. If, if I did something else, then who knows where, where it would have been. It's... Uh, I think it's just if you if you choose to commit to it, just go. You know, have have uh, faith and confidence that it it's solvable. So imagine the four and a half years you must have learned a lot. Yes, um, absolutely. Not, I mean, you might have known a lot about motorcycles before, but the whole business aspect and the um, yeah the paperwork. You mentioned that All you just got approved for for road safety, and now you have the. Uh, Inspection stickers and, and license plates. So that's um, yeah, it's that's, it's a, a whole process. world, you know. It's uh, but again, it's uh, the if you focus on the complexity of uh, of the whole thing, the bike contains a thousand five hundred parts. If I were to look at these parts scattered over the floor, it would be insane, right? It'd be like there's no way this is possible. But if you break it out into subassemblies, you know, just focus on one piece, and then suddenly that piece falls together with another piece and then 
it becomes this thing. How many people have flexing. you had work on the bikes? Engineers um, and, and, and designers? And, and I would say, I mean, throughout the years, um, including um, uh, suppliers and vendors, I would say the core team may be 10 to 15 people. And then we have a global supply chain of maybe 30, 30 vendors. So, uh, for example, the frames are being made in Spain, uh, battery packs in France. So it's, uh, it's almost like uh, an orchestra, you know, and there's, because there's so many individual parts involved and people and they all work on software technology, electrical engineering, hardware, and at the end, they all have to come together and they all have to work perfectly. So it's, it's like coordinating this dance and then final rehearsal, you hope that it's going to sound good, you know. Um, I think that's kind of the, the way I, I look at it. So four and a half years in, what are your, your that's almost half a, half a decade. <laughs> now what, what are your, uh, your hopes and dreams for, for the future? I, I don't know. I, don't, I tend not to think in terms of years uh, or like, oh, where are we in five years? I had no idea where I was going to be five years ago. So I think, uh, I think just setting a direction and then how long it's going to take for you to get there matters less. Uh, but the direction that we're heading now is um, get obviously the first bikes into customers' hands. So this summer we're going to start building um, the first edition of the bikes. And uh, then take the steps sort of from small, low-volume manufacturing to a large scale, which is, uh, that's going to be an interesting way to, how do you actually build this at scale? Um, and then we're going to introduce a uh, second uh, product um, and eventually start looking at vehicles across uh, other terrains. Um, so not just two-wheelers. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, I have uh, a few uh, napkin sketches of what these uh, what these things are, but that's part of our rollout uh, rollout plan. Um, and I hope uh, I hope people are going to embrace sustainable vehicles quicker, um, because clearly, you know, everybody agrees and sort of nods their heads that our environment is not doing great, and there's so many different challenges that we should be focusing on everything from cutting our carbon emissions, um, rethinking transportation. Um, so as, uh, as a company that produces physical things, for us it's important to build them the way that does the least amount of harm to our environment and essentially or eventually find a process that is it possible to be zero waste? Is it possible to build uh, physical things that are fully recyclable, fully biodegradable, um, as non-toxic as possible. And uh, it's, who knows how long it's going to take. You know, maybe it's going to take five or ten years. Uh, but I think it's important for the industry in general to start thinking along those terms and say, you know, it's, uh, what is sustainability? Is it just a nice page on your website? Or do you truly implement these strategies, you know, what, what is an ethical supply chain? Um, can you build your products locally? Can you uh, support local communities and environments instead of sort of outsourcing something to the other side of the world and then 
being completely disconnected from that process. And uh, what's inspiring to see is that there's also uh, consumers are starting to asking those questions, you know, where are my products from? Who made them? What materials goes into this? So it's kind of it's kind of this uh, this um, uh, dialogue between the manufacturers and the consumers, and I think we have to be more more involved in that and more transparent. And uh, for the companies to say we believe in this because it's the right thing to do, and for the consumers to say, great, I'm going to buy it because it's simply better. So, do you feel like we're in a a mobility revolution when it comes to electric vehicles? Yeah, of course. Um, all all the trends point to it. You know, it's. Uh, I think we're right now in sort of moment in the biggest disruption how we move around since the last hundred years. Uh, so, from horses to cars. You know, that transition happened in the, in 1908. There's this. Uh, Famous photograph of uh, New York uh, parade in 1908, and it just horses on uh, Fifth Avenue. And then 1913, it just cars and one horse. So that flipped within a number of years, you know. And I'm sure all those people sitting in the horse looking at the cars like, what is this thing? And then suddenly <laughs> they're everywhere. So I think the same thing is happening, not just electric mobility, but just the sheer number of other solutions of, uh, of moving around. The concept of ownership is still going to be around for a number of years, um, especially if you look at products that are sort of uh, meaningful to you. So uh, for most people who have a motorcycle, they want to own it because they want to add sort of the personal touch to it. Um, but if it's more of about a quick way for me to get from point A to point B, then I'm going to take you know, a shared scooter or whatever. So I think there's going to be there's going to be a more choice in terms of mobility. There's going to be more freedom for you to to pick the vehicle that you like for your specific mode of transportation. And you know, we hear this last mile solution that this is how you get around the last mile and what kind of vehicles are there. Then you got the three to five miles. What vehicles are going to be in that category? Um, so I hope there's going to be place for for all of it, but. Uh, no doubt, more and more people are going to live in urban areas. And I, I believe by 2050, more than 50% of people are going to live in, uh, in cities, which means that infrastructure is already uh, overloaded. If you look at cities like Los Angeles, you know, people are spending hours in cars. So that's not sustainable. And uh, we have to start rethinking not just what kind of vehicles we're gonna, there's going to be on the road, but also how should um, urban planners think about the infrastructure in the cities? Should we start taking our roads and dividing them? Now, there are a couple of European cities that are looking at, okay, well, what would happen if we took a six-lane highway and divided it for uh, bicycles and then um, low-speed uh, vehicles up to 30 miles an hour, you know, so that each mode of transportation would have each dedicated uh, a path. I think that makes a lot of sense, as opposed to just having you know trucks on the BQE <laughs> and then people in stuffed in uh, in subways. Very cool. Very cool. It's very exciting times. <laughs> good. Good. I'm happy to hear it. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time to do this. Thank you. My this pleasure. Is great. Um, yeah. Awesome.
Awesome. You've been listening to the Scandinavian Mind podcast with me, Conrad Olson. This show was edited by Eric Sedin. If you liked what you heard, follow us on your preferred podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To get the latest news, insights, and invites to upcoming events, sign up to our newsletter. Just go to scandinavianmind.com to become part of our movement. Thank you.